Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 109, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. Why are dairy groups pushing coffee in schools? And are esports a viable career path? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, Hacking School Discipline, we talked to one of the guys who wrote the book. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, what are you up to? Uh dorms dorm rooms i paint a lot of large pieces of art for dorms like just for like college students like hang on their walls yes i i know you probably haven't looked into this and maybe a lot of our listeners haven't either but there's like this this crazy thing it's just yeah i mean absolutely it's a girl thing for sure and it may be a southern thing honestly i'm i mean i know that magazines have started to feature it i haven't been lucky enough for um, one of my art pieces to be featured in a magazine, but I did teach a lady how to paint a painting. Like I helped her, you know, along, and then hers got featured, which oh my is gosh. A, a happy accident. But, yeah. um, but anyway, so they they do these like posh dorm rooms, like to where it's almost looks like a page out of you know an interior design. Yeah, these, magazine. these dorm rooms look like, nicer than my bedroom. Absolutely, they right. look like an extremely nice guest room or vacation getaway spa room, <laughs> um, and they're super color coordinated and very. I mean, the creative side of me just I can't help but get swept up into it just because they're so creative. The things that they come up with to be able to put in a small space without damaging the walls it's like do you remember that show trading spaces do you remember oh, I wait, love refresh that my show. memory that was what what happened oh i think it was like on tlc or hgtv a long time ago and you would like switch houses with your neighbor like you would go oh, that's and right and you would decorate, decorate each other's house do, yeah, 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 and yeah so and you would do all these things these super creative yeah yeah i totally things. forgot about that show now so it's kind of was like it genevieve that. was on it right yeah, and then was. and was it Vern? Vip? But yeah, what was his name? We liked the him. little the little um, Asian guy. Yeah, yeah. Yes, um, I think it was Vern. Vern Yip. Was yeah. it Vern Yip? Am I making that up? I, I don't know. He apparently <laughs> has a place over in um, Santa Rosa Beach, just past Destin. He and his partner. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, anyway, so yes, they. It's kind of like that. Like so. Anyway, they. Where I come in is they want a large piece of modern or abstract artwork, and that is a lot of the private art pieces that I sell are right up their alley. You know, a lot of metallics, gold leaf, you know, a resin finish. And And it's unique. No um, one else. Like it's one of a kind. Yep. Yep. And so it's like, they're not able to find things, you know, if they went to like Bed Bath and Beyond, they don't really have that style they're going for. So, I mean, it is so crazy, but they, you know, I just get slammed in the month of July. Okay. Yeah. I got to ask like, like, What's slammed? Like five or like 15 or? Wait. Well, I've already completed three and I'm working on six. Wow. 
And then I'm making one for my son's room, for his dorm room, but it's Gold not leaf. anything like, no, it's nothing <laughs> like theirs. His is just, I'm taking a building on campus that he's, the campus he's going to be at, the Southern Miss um, Administrative Building, which is kind of like their iconic building for the university. And I'm just doing a wicked painting of that yeah, that building, just black and white, just kind of. It's got a, it's got a big dome on it, the top of it that's yes. copper. Yes. So um, it'll just be kind of like a. Just a black and white, large um, abstract of that. So a little more cool. You know, you can't go too far in the in the the boys' rooms. They don't like that. But the girl rooms, I mean, they have like fur rugs. They bring in like extra furniture. Um, I mean, just all kinds of interesting ways of of getting away with lighting and right. So a lot of people here locally, they'll buy a piece from me, and sometimes two pieces, like sister pieces. But each mom will purchase each piece so then when these girls move out of the dorm they have this this nice piece of artwork to to take to their apartment or put in in their first house one day so it is kind of like more of a keepsake that's cool yeah and so i mean you're are you doing this on canvas because you have to hang it with like command strips right like you can't put yeah them on the wall. I, I paint them on stretch canvas so you can so it's not too can, heavy though it's not too heavy and it has yeah. a lip so you could put like three command hooks gotcha. all in a line and it supports them well, that's cool and excessive <laughs> at the same time. That's yes. that's a, that's what you call extra, right? It is so extra, yes. But and it's so not my personality, but I, I I do. I just love. It's fun. I love seeing them all put together. I'm always like, send me a picture because you know, moving day. I think it's just a total nightmare for these moms because it's all about getting the room just gorgeous, and I can't wait to get the pictures to see my my art hanging in these super awesome rooms right well that's that's fun yeah like it's it's rewarding but at the same time you're kind of like oh, i'm just playing into this but yes <laughs> but that's fun um so what's going on in the uh, teacher's lounge this summer well i i'm gonna get your opinion on this so you know i love coffee i drink and i two, don't drink coffee at all yeah well yeah. i drink two cups in the morning and then i have an afternoon cup around three-ish o'clock so every day so um what do you think about coffee being in schools um, I'm like, maybe it's a urban legend, but doesn't coffee like stunt growth? Like, is that not true? I really have no idea. <laughs> I've heard that, but it I mean, might, I am a very short person. So <laughs> it's maybe. the coffee. Because <laughs> I did start drinking coffee young. Like, that's it. I, I did. So um, my I used to s- steal sips from my grandma's cup. And then I remember they would have it out in youth group at church. And I would always get a little cup here and there. But, um, but I don't know. It also isn't coffee like kind of expensive like it is expensive so here's where it comes into education which i just think this is very clever but i did not know this but the dairy industry is struggling i guess less and less people are are doing dairy it's the got milk ads aren't cool anymore that's the problem well they're they're coming up with a new ad that's you know not the got milk but um it says that you the u.s is down 40 percent since 1975 and it's dairy production and industry are they are they losing out to like almond milk i think so yes is that what it is yeah they mentioned uh the alternative milks but also just people um you know with this idea that milk is fattening and that kind of stuff so yeah um so anyway um, and wait uh, one more thing can we agree that it's kind of weird that humans drink milk from another animal like is there another animal that drinks milk from another animal (laughs) Can we just like talk about that for a second? <laughs> like, is there another one? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's I, a little weird. 
But, you're, you're weird. <laughs> all right, moving okay. on, moving on. I think that's what we're agreeing on. All right. You're weird. Okay. Anyways, okay, so a dairy group in North Dakota has given a $5,000 grant to a school to buy an espresso machine. So you're like, what? That's not dairy. That's coffee. Right, right. But there, it's it's to make iced lattes, which since you're not a coffee drinker, lattes are mostly milk with a little bit of coffee. Um, and they're, you know, a, a lot of younger kids like the iced version. That's the ones you see in the clear cup. So basically, um, the milk industry is like a drug dealer, and they're using coffee <laughs> as the gateway they're lacing to milk. It. Yes, they're lacing yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so they and this is like happening a lot, like where they're, um, you know, trying to push coffee because that also pushes milk. milk. And so wow. now the schools say, hey, look, in high school, this is just another, you know, to set up these coffee bar areas in the high school is just another cool way to try to get kids to come to school, to try to make them yeah, feel like they're not in an institution. I like that. I like that. So, yeah, yeah. You're... So the, you know, they're not really fighting it, which I think is kind of cool. But also, like, one um, school they said was, if you, I guess if you buy a lunch, it's, um, it's $2 or whatever. But then if you, if you just buy a latte, it's $3. But if you buy a lunch and use the milk that comes with lunch and uh-huh. take it over to the, the coffee area and use that milk to make your, your coffee, then you save money. Um, instead of just buying just the latte. So like it's like they're le- allowing you to, if you're not going to sit there and just drink that milk, yeah. if you like that milk in a latte, then come and buy a lunch and use that milk and you save money over at the coffee station. You save $2 where everybody else is paying $2 more. Um, so I can get on board with a few things. And one, let's keep in mind, big picture, like this is the milk industry trying to keep relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a gimmick, you could say, right? But I do like <laughs> the idea, like you just said, of these like community spaces where, like, all right, what's going to happen if you don't offer coffee at a high school? Well, all these kids are going to want to, you know, jet from campus and go run the Starbucks and they meet do. With their friends, right? Right. And they do. They it. do. And they walk in the morning with coffee, which so. is also expensive. More way more expensive than probably what the school's offering. So it is, and um, they're also maybe not as healthy because the lattes and stuff have to be regulated through the school's nutritional program. So they're probably. I mean, the, the the article that I read said that they're often healthier than if you went to your local coffee beanery. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, um, I know like our local high school here, um, they've got like these cool courtyards and stuff, and I just see this as like something you could add in, whether it's in a courtyard or just a space, but just like the idea of this like community gathering spot. So so that is cool. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess I don't have a problem with it, but we just need to acknowledge who's pushing it. The milk industry trying to ride on the coattails of the coffee industry, right? Yes, and the whole point is to try to obviously gain back a stance for dairy over things like soy and almond, but as soon as, you know, which is a great idea, and these grants, they're great, but as soon as you, you know, put a coffee bar in a school, there's no way to say, but you cannot have almond almond milk milk or soy milk. Like, those are going to be allowed too. Right. So I just, I mean, I kind of think it's cool just for the fact of, you know, it's just a nice way to treat these high school kids with a little more flexibility um, to where they don't feel like they're in such an institution and it's just a humdrum day. And, and I kind of missed the grant part. So like you were saying, like basically the, the dairy industry is going to be offering grants to like build coffee bars at schools. 
Well, or they're donating, yeah, they're donating, you know, $5,000 worth of espresso machines. So really what they're donating is the machinery that you need to put the coffee, I mean, to put the milk in, you know. So they're not donating the milk. They're right. donating, you know, this whole setup. Yeah. So it, it's, some it, are doing things like, well, we can't donate an espresso machine, but we can donate um, all these chalkboard, uh, like more things in the setting. Like we can donate stools and and um, menu boards and things like that. So they're trying to help them set up um, coffee bars. So, I mean... I think if you're if you've got a local high school and you've got a, a dead area in your building that's just kind of blah, maybe you should have a club, you know, try to start one of these espresso bars, get a grant, um, get local involvement too, because I'm sure some of your local coffee places are going to want to get in there a little bit too, and maybe this could be an ongoing fundraiser for your school, almost like how elementary schools do snack day and they sell snacks and that money goes to field. To, to fund field day or, you know, different special days, maybe your ongoing coffee bar, a little bit of money each day from it can go back into the school. All right. I, I've got one for you. That's going to make you kind of be like, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've come a ways, but I, we've talked <laughs> about this topic before and I'm expecting some eye rolling. Um, I'm already rolling my eyes. Yeah. Uh, so ISTE, you're familiar with what ISTE is. It's the big like tech conference for schools and education, right? Yes. Well, they had a guy there named Juan Dabidma. I'm hoping, hopefully saying that last name right. But he was actually a speaker at ISTE this year. And he left his job to go play video games. More, even more accurately, a single video game. He is an eSports athlete. <laughs> I guess that's the right word. Wait, so like that's his job his is job to play video games? To play video games. Okay. He, he earned... Um, $85,000 in prize money in 2016. And then in 2017, he earned a hundred thousand dollars. I'm not sure how much he made in 18, but he has made a living and a, a good one playing video games. Okay. And really what he was talking to the folks at ISTE about is are esports potentially a viable career path. And his message to this group is yes, like it, it is a viable career path, except I'm maybe a, a lead actor in a show. Like I'm not not everyone's going to be the lead actor in the show, but there are growing roles supporting esports in terms of like, you know, marketing in an arena mm -hmm. and setting everything up and, you know, that that it could actually become somewhat of a career. So I'll stop right now. Are you rolling your eyes to the idea of esports? <laughs> yes. I mean, and I see what he's saying and that's great. It's just, it's so frustrating for teachers because, you know, it used to be when you ask children what they want to be when they grow up, you know, it, you know, yes, you would have kids that would say, I want to play for the NFL or I want to yeah, be no a worldwide soccer player. But, but you did also have lots of kids that said, you know, I want to be a musician. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse. And now almost every child wants says, to play video games for yes, I want to be a gamer or a YouTuber. That's what they say. And so, I mean, it is, I get it. It's the same thing as if you have a child that is, you know, a pretty good quarterback that constantly is saying, I want to play, I want to be a quarterback professionally. And you're looking at that child and thinking, oh gosh, you know, there's not that many quarterbacks, you know, lots of teams have more positions in other 
positions on the football field than just quarterback. Quarterback is kind of, there's just one, you know? So I get it where parents and and me, where I am saying, you know, oh, you know, that's such a narrow scope. That's such a narrow, narrow scope. And you're isolating yourself from all kinds of other skills to, to when you, if you don't make it as a YouTuber or a gamer, then then what? Then what are you going to fall back on, you know? And so, I mean, because, like, I have a dear friend who has a really, really bright son. So smart. And he has just finished his freshman year of college and is this summer making the case to his mom that he really just wants to not go back to college and just do gaming because he's, he is a good, he is a good gamer. Like, you know, my boys know that he's really good, but you know, he's even at the college level saying, I, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go to college. I think I'm just going right. to dive into this. And I mean, that's, that is scary. I mean, okay. So I, I hear you. We, we, we experience the same problems with basketball and football and baseball. Uh, I guess so. It's really two conversations that need to be had. One is, will esports even be a thing in the future? And first off, if if you're listening to this, you're like, what are they talking about esports? Like this means like people are watching on TV and they're going to arenas to watch people play video games. And I know that sounds crazy, but so. like if you have a if you have a teenager, they're probably watching people on YouTube all day long play video games. Like this is quickly becoming a thing that people find entertaining. And I would argue they certainly find it more entertaining than watching golf or um, watching tennis um, and maybe even watching football and basketball and so forth. And at the same time, you don't have the same injuries that you would say with football. Are they watching because it's going to help them get better when they go play? No, because it's legitimately entertaining. And I've watched. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I've watched (laughs) things. I will go and even watch my own children play you know, Fortnite or whatever game, like, you know, what's the one with the cars and they're like moving the ball around. I can't think of the name of it right now, but I I will just sit there and watch. But then I've even watched like Overwatch and um, I've watched um, Steel Starcrafts and stuff. Like it is legitimately entertaining and they, they actually have announcers commentating these things. And like, this is quickly becoming a real thing. And ESPN's investing in it. Um, Robert Kraft, who owns the New England Patriots, is investing in esports type companies. Um, so, and the fact that you say all of your students, this is all they want to do, tells me that there's only going to continue to be a growing market for this in the future. So, I, I guess that's that's my argument that it, it, it is becoming something. Well, it sounds um, like it. I just, I guess I'm so out of the loop that, um, you know, but but I do hear. I mean, it is what kids want to be when they grow up, and and I think they just the reason they're saying it is this sounds like so much fun. I get to play video games for a living. You know, and, and I, I think that's really the reality of it. Like, not everyone's going to be the Tom Brady of of the league, and whoever the the you know the ninja in esports. But you know, there there may be a market for students to to learn about you know, marketing an esports game or building what it takes in terms of technology to set up an arena for esports or commentating esports just like you would broadcast via a football announcer. I don't know. I just feel like that's that's what this guy's arguing, that there is going to be a market for this. And just mm-hmm. keep that in mind. Now, this is, I feel like we're 10 years ahead of this even really starting to stick, but it was a discussion that the folks at 
ISTE in 2019 at the conference in Philadelphia that just happened a couple weeks ago felt like was a conversation worth ha- having. So Wow. Yeah. Well, are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Yeah. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is one of the authors of Hacking School Discipline. Nathan Maynard studied behavioral neuroscience at Purdue, and he has been facilitating restorative practices for over 10 years. Nathan, welcome to Class Dismissed. Yeah, thank you. Uh, That term, restorative practices, before I even dive into anything else, much of your book, Hacking School Discipline, revolves around it. But, But to help me and our listeners understand, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so... Restorative practices is the way that we approach each student when they're in conflict or to be preventative with that student. So what that means is we really focus on the relationships, building up those relationships. If relationships get damaged, how to repair those relationships with the students as well as ourselves. It's about letting them see you know, where we're coming from, that empathy piece, as well as us understanding where they're coming from, their empathy piece as well. Restorative practices implements logical and restorative consequences. And what restorative consequences means is the way that um, if you do something wrong, you have to repair the harm for what you did wrong. So it's really looking at each situation individually, seeking to understand behaviors as well as being preventative, and then building those relationships back up if there's ever damage. So I understand this right. If, say, if a child got in a um, fight in school, what's an example of not using restorative practices and what's an example of using it? Yeah, so let's say uh, you know you got two students that get into an altercation fight, and typically um, some systems what they would do is you would label that behavior and say, okay, this is your first fight. That's going to be a three day suspension. After that three days, we're going to have you come back in. There might be a little bit of a touch base, but you know that's that's normally the process. With restorative practices, what it does is say, okay, let's let's talk to both these individuals. Let's see what de-escalation you know I need to put into place. Because sometimes you do need to also have a suspension in place. But when those students return, or if they didn't end up leaving and they went to some sort of in-school suspension where they're away from each other, when they return, what you would want to do is do a conference with those two students and their parents. And during that conference, you ask a lot of empathy-driving questions, understanding how the other person felt, how the parents felt, how a fight really becomes a ripple effect for the entire climate of that classroom or that school, and then letting those two students understand how they impacted everyone else. After one of those conferences, you know, what we do is we come up with a plan of action about how to move forward and any other steps we need to take to repair the harm with what they with what they harmed in that school. So what it does is really um, builds up those two students back up as a whole. So then they feel like everything's being addressed. The parents feel like they're they're being heard as well. The teachers that were involved with the situation can be brought in so they feel like they can be heard. And then when they come back into that climate, they're reintegrated instead of just saying, okay, you're suspended, go for three days, come back in, don't do that again. It's more of a, hey, we're all in this together. Let's build each other back up. And these conferences don't take much time. You know, I mean, you can spend 30 minutes on one of these conferences when they're returning to school and it, it does wonders for the different schools. And I think that's why so many people are picking up on these practices. Well, and so you and uh, your colleague, um, Brad Weinstein, you guys decided to write this book, Hacking School Discipline, but but what was your motivation for doing it? Yeah, so Brad and I, um, we were working together at Purdue Polytechnic High School. He was the director of curriculum and I was the dean of culture there. So I dealt with the discipline. Um, Brad came in and he had this really cool 
Google spreadsheet that he was using at a different school to track behaviors. And it was this big, you know, situation where we wanted to integrate that with our systems, but I was doing restorative practices. So him and I started a lot of conversations back and forth about how to be restorative with sort of the spreadsheet, as well as I was passing on some of the, you know, my background with the restorative and he was passing on some of his background with mindfulness and other components. We started talking and um, Brad had a relationship with the publisher, Mark Barnes. And so then from there, we pitched the idea to him about some sort of restorative discipline, restorative practices. And Mark was, you know, all on board. So him and I sat down together and we started laying that out. And, you know, when we were writing this book too, we didn't want to just focus on restorative practices or restorative justice. We really wanted to focus on the social emotional aspects of students, as well as trauma informed care when you're dealing with different students. And that's the seeking to understand with different behaviors because one student throwing something and another student throwing something doesn't mean the same thing. You know, sometimes there's other factors involved. So you can't always do the same consequence for each and every individual. And that's what restorative consequences help um, set those uh, schools up for success with. And, and so you guys designed the book where you kind of break it down into the chapters, of course, but they're each one's kind of a common problem that that schools face, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. That's how we break them. And I'm going to ask you to do something that's difficult, which is like you know picking your favorite child. But like if there was if there was one that kind of really you know you wanted to tell someone about right now, which one of those would it be? Yeah. I, so I I love the chapter where it's let's talk because um, that's really about seeking to understand those behaviors and keeping those relationships going with the students. One of the reasons why I like that chapter the most is because um, I all my students that I've ever dealt with you know over the you know, several years, they always joke around with me and they always say, oh, Mr. Maynard, he wants to talk to me. I'm not in trouble. He just wants to talk. And it's always been like this laughing joke. And but again, when a student's acting up in class, instead of having a resource officer come grab them or having, you know, three people say, get out of here, let's go. You know, I come in and say, hey, I just need to talk to you for a moment. And it really creates this culture of, hey, you know, like we're, we're in this together. I'm not going to jump on, you know, the immediate referral because sometimes I get those referrals down where, you know, students acting out in class and I want to understand every side of it. So I hear the teacher, I take that in and then I bring up that student. I understand where they're coming from and then I make sure that that consequence is restorative and logical and matches up with repairing the harm with that teacher because I don't want to just have them come out and have a long conversation with me and then me bring them back into the classroom. I want to make sure I'm fixing that all the way around. So that chapter really dives into what restorative practices can do for school admin like myself as well as so the teachers understand what that process looks like also and then they can do that you know throughout their classrooms so let's say a student's acting you know out instead of saying come go out in the hallway right now you can say hey let's talk bring them out there and do a quick restorative conversation um you can do some sort of victim um mediation if you have like two two students that are sort of picking on each other and you can do those really quickly with that chapter what I loved what you said earlier, and I don't know if anyone else listening caught this, but you said you're you're the dean of culture, which and you handle discipline. But but that title alone, I don't know if it was you that came up with that or if this has always been established. It was, it's, yeah. It's, it's pretty brilliant, right? I mean, it, it's, yeah. it, it kind of cha- it sets the tone, does it not? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when we were um, starting this school, and we started it two years ago, and it's a very different type of model, um, we were coming up with what my role would be. So there's a lot of different options out there on the table. Um, and I really wanted that not just to be a dean of students or a discipline type. I wanted it to be about culture building. So anytime that there's any professional developments, um, building up other staff members, helping with those student discipline problems, family nights, you know, that's that's my role. So my role is really about that culture of the building, maintaining that and keeping that a healthy culture. Uh, I know in the book you you um, make a point in, to caution teachers 
of doing something that may actually be happening this summer. And that is be careful to go to a teacher that has an incoming student and saying, hey, watch out for that child. Um, he's a little bit of a troublemaker, right? You you suggest yep. don't pass that information on to the, the other teacher. Yes. Yeah. And the and again, too, it's fine to communicate different you know, aspects of that student and to go over. But when you say something like that, you're really quickly labeling that student. So if you do want to, you know, because it's fine to communicate when the student's struggling because you don't want this other teacher to come in there and you've learned a year's worth of data on the student. And then you want them to be, you know, blindsided by some of these um, situations that the student's struggling with. But again, too, when you say these are the bad kids, these are the good kids. Um, I've heard a teacher before I was doing a professional development recently, and she said when she first started, the senior teacher sat her down and said, those four are going to go to college. These five are going to go work in the factory. These two are going to do this. And those two over there are going to go to prison. And when they label something like that, you know, wow. even if that teacher comes in, yeah. And even when that teacher comes in and, and looks at that situation, they still have those, you know, ideas in the back of their head. So it's so much easier to say like, these students over here are really good at math. These ones over here love recess. So that's a good incentive for them, you know, and just sort of build the students up. And if a student really does struggle, you know, you can put that in a strength-based language. And the teacher that was telling me is a little bit older. So she had some of those, you know, generational pass downs. But again, so we have to fight to stop that. Because again, when when we pass down seeing these are the rough kids, these are the bad kids, or these are the kids that are going to prison, which is extreme, you know, that that really puts these thoughts in teachers' heads when they see that student walk in the door, even if they're trying to actively not think about that. There's multiple types of data that that schools now have at their fingertips. Um, you know, you've got your academic data, but then you also have that that discipline data. How would you advise educators to be using the discipline data? Yeah, so I, I so I'm a strong believer in the multi-tiered systems of support, the MTSS model. I think that you know, it, I, there's the response to intervention model, the RTI model. But I really think MTSS is where you know a lot of states are going towards right now, and I really think that's the way that you support your students. So I think you can use that discipline data with tracking what tiers those students will be into. Are they a tier one, tier two, and tier three students, and then what sort of supports you can offer for each one of those students? I do think when you're looking at the discipline data, you have to come up with universal approaches that are going to hit all three of those different tiers. I think that's what restorative practices offer is looking at all of that as a whole. And forgive me, I don't know when when you and Brad actually um, wrote this book. When was it? How long ago did it was it published? Yeah, it was published on March 11th um, of this year. Okay, so as it's kind of been out there for for several months, have you? been surprised and have you guys made much penetration in the world of like spreading the word of restorative practices like how how common was that concept and, and how much progress have you made in, in telling everyone about it yeah absolutely yeah we're we're very surprised with um how popular the book's been i'm looking on twitter seeing people take pictures of it you know and people quote different aspects of it it's, it's so it makes us feel so well because, you know, we're thinking about, you know, when I'm dealing with, you know, the, you know, my 300 students at my school or Brad's, you know, helping out with his school because he was a principal prior to coming over to Purdue Polytechnic High School. You know, what we're thinking about is every one of these teachers, we're impacting their entire classrooms if they're going to try this practices. So we're really spreading the word so quickly through, you know, just just these books being, you know, out there and people checking them out. So I, I think that's a huge penetration. Restorative practices as a whole has been out there for a while. It really got started um, in the early, like, or the late 80s um, with the International Institute of Restorative Practices 
instructors who trained me um, back in 2008, um, and they're they're a great institute. So that's how I got trained, and I started doing it with um, students, or not students, but um, uh, kids that were in the juvenile justice field. So I did that for eight years prior to going into education. In the education realm, there's there's not a lot out there um, of them doing restorative practices at the time after I when I was getting trained back in 2008. Now it's a lot more out there and a lot more people are doing it. But I still think that there's a lot of steps to be taken. Um, I, Brad and I have been going around and we're doing professional developments to different schools because there's a lot of big organizations that do amazing trainings, how to get trained. What Brad and I really focus on on how to make this digestible in the classroom quickly and the quick takeaways that they can have. So again, when we're going in and doing these um, professional developments, um, you know, we're partnering with close to, I think it's like 15 to 20 school districts this upcoming year to help them out with restorative practices. Also on an international level, um, I recently got back from um, Belgium. I spoke at Cortage um, Belgium to talk about some um, a taxonomy of restorative practices in the school. So I wanted to talk to a lot of people that's been in the field for a long time about that. So I went over to Belgium and spoke um, about that as well. I've got to ask, because you said you, you had a background in um, juvenile justice, and, and that's interesting. Like, what did what was your takeaway from from that part of your career um, and yeah. headed into education? Yeah, so it, it was the, the best thing that's ever happened to me. And in, in all honesty, I started out I was 21 years old. You know, I, I graduated behavioral neuroscience degree. Um, I really wanted to work with at-risk and underserved, underprivileged populations. So I started working at a residential treatment care center as um, a full-time staff. I ran a violent and sex offender unit um, for three years, and then I moved up and I uh, went into a clinical role. But after a while, um, it really just opens up your eyes to the, the stories of these kids. So when I'm going into education, I'm I'm I know the background of some of these, these kids that have had such a rough background and going into their homes or working with their families or having them come into the residential treatment care center, taking them to court, you know, writing these, you know, reports about their lives, about everything that's happened to them. It really makes you think like, you know, if I saw this kid walking on the street, I'd say, oh, that, that kid looks like, you know, he, you know, he's probably not doing the best, you know, life choices. I should probably walk on this side of the street. And then when you start digging in, you're like, man, he's had this, 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 this happened to him. Like this kid just needs someone to care about him. He needs someone to help him out. And that's what I've done in education. These, these tier three students or these students that are underserved and underprivileged. I look at each one of them and say like, they, they need someone on their side. They, they don't have a lot of people on their side. And I know it's tough. And I know that they'll act out and they'll call names and they'll throw some, they'll steal something off your desk, but like they need support and they just don't know how to get it. So when we try to reach those students and try to help those students, there's so much we can do and success for each one of those students is different. We can't say success for every student is A's and B's and going off to college. You know, success is different for every single one of students and we have to praise their journey through school, even those ups and downs and work through them with them. So I think working in the juvenile justice field, it really opened up my eyes to, you know, what, what we can do to support just ending every kid overall. Well, well, Nathan, I got to tell you, it sounds like like your background makes you like the perfect ambassador for restorative practices. Like, I mean, that's 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 really is great, and, and I'm really excited that you, you. you and Brad put the book together. If somebody wants to keep up with um, either one of you guys, I mean, should they follow you on Twitter? Is that where you normally like to interact, or where do you hang out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter's our biggest um, hangout spot right now. Um, Brad and I also publish some blogs, so you can check out our blogs on behaviorflip.com. Um, that's where we're posting most of our stuff right now, but yeah, Twitter's our big, big, um, platform right now. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Nathan. Are you ready for our pop quiz? 
I am. Let's go. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Hmm. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, hmm. I would probably say English just because I feel like you would have to learn how to communicate with others, read, you know, write, sort of get through, you know, those type of subjects. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I would definitely say social emotional learning. I think the more we can teach that in every single classroom, even if you're teaching math or you're teaching English, what sort of social emotional aspects can you add to those lesson plans? How can you engage that student? Because, you know, we know that, you know, students, the neuroscience of their brain is not as fully functioning. So they fire with their amygdala very quickly, which is their flight or fight response. So what can we do to engage the rest of their brain so their hippocampus is remembering things? So, that, you know, the prefrontal cortex is sort of laying out that context because even little lessons can engage that rest of your brain. So what can we do to really activate all of that? What does every child deserve? I think every child deserves us to be patient, kind, and, and just willing to see them as, as a child and not label them and just give them all all fresh start every single day, even if it's a repeated behavior. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Hmm. I I think balance. I I think educators right now are stretched very, very thin. You have a lot of people, you know, looking at you. You have, you know, your your principals, you have other people in the school, you have parents, you have students that you know, you're, you're trying to meet the needs of your classroom, trying to meet, you know, so many different, you know, aspects. And there's so much balance, you know, even like with restorative practices and social emotional learning, a lot of teachers here and they're like, I, I don't have time for that. I, I have to do this, 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 and this, you know, so I think the balance is so hard for educators. It, it's, it's a very tough field to, you know, keep that going. What's the best gift to give an educator? I think the gift of, um, I think most educators have it, but I would say patience. You know, I think that, you know, when going through that balance, that components, students with, you know, behavioral, you know, challenges, you know, I think that patience is a really good aspect they should, you know, every educator should have. Which teacher changed your life? I would definitely say um, I had a math teacher in eighth grade um, that really set me straight. I was struggling um, quite a bit when I was younger. Um, and, and I, I really did not have plans to graduate high school, um, by any means. And I, I was really struggling and this math teacher, and I wasn't even that close to him, but I was doing an after school detention. He was the one running it at the time. And he pulled me aside and he said, he was like, Nathan, you like living here. Do you like, you know, Marion, Indiana? And I was like, <laughs> right. no, no, I, no, I don't. And he was like, do you like, do you like you're living with your parents? I'm like, I, I don't. And he's like, you're going to do this for, for a long time. You're going to stay here. You're not going to get out. You know, there's, there's no ways out. He's like, you have to, you know, if you want to get out, you, you know, college is the easy way. You can take out student loans. You can, you know, do this stuff. And he started talking to me about it. And then I started, you know, high school that very next year. And then I graduated at the top of my class, you know, in the top 10. So like, I, I really turned it in and I was getting D's and F's and, and this math teacher did not even know me very well, but he just opened up my eyes and he saw that I was struggling and he, you know, he just made me think like, I don't want to live in Marion. So wow. I, I, yeah, well, what- I really turned it around that's like such a pivotal moment have you ever had a chance to reach out to him i haven't i haven't yeah. and in, in all honesty this is sad but i don't even remember his name i wow. didn't know him very well i was so not engaged in school 
Um, I, you know, I, I, I need to try to figure out who he was because he, that just small conversation. And I mean, he talked to me for maybe five minutes, changed my entire outlook. Two of my really good friends, um, you know, are, are still struggling, you know, every day. And, right. and I see, you know, their, their different struggles and read about some of the stuff. And it's just, I, I think about, I was in that same path. I was dealing with that same stuff. You know, there's, there's poverty, there's, there's other stuff involved where I, I really overcame so much because of that small little conversation. I think that's why I pushed so many educators to have those conversations because you never know whose life you're going to change. He doesn't know he changed my life. He doesn't know that now I'm reaching thousands and thousands of educators with my book. You know, yeah, so, like that's powerful. Yeah. That like if you ever reach out it to is, him, I would love to hear the follow up on that because like that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, you I know, I, I yeah, I need to figure out who. Yeah, I'm sure I can find out. So. I mean, and what a lesson <laughs> to educators listening of like you said, you know, he, he, you weren't his student, but still he had that conversation. That's that's really cool. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. And last question: pen or pencil? I would say pencil, um, just so you can always you know go back and erase and try try something new. All right. Again, the book is Hacking School Discipline. Uh, Nathan, we really appreciate you uh, sharing these ideas of restorative practices. And and hopefully um, you just continue to uh, spread the word. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. Go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.